Come on, come on, guess what, guess what Time to reset this thing Hello and welcome to episode 817 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus on the phone today, and we are doing the second team up in our 30-team preview podcast series. Yesterday we did the Phillies, and today we are doing the team that Pakoda projects to be the second worst in the major leagues the Atlanta Braves. And later in the show, Jeff Paternostro will talk to Garrett Spain, who covers the Braves' very highly rated farm system for Talking Chop, the SB Nation Braves blog. But in our first segment, we are talking to Mark Bradley, longtime columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and author of an excellent essay on the Braves in this year's BP Annual. Hey, Mark. Hey, Ben. Hey, Sam. So we have to rewind a little bit, I think, before we talk about 2016, because I'm still a little bit bleary on on how the Braves got to where they are today, because just a few years ago, it seemed like they were as well set up for the future as any team in baseball. They had one of the highest rated farm systems. They had teams that were winning titles and winning 95, 96 games. They had young stars locked up to recently signed extensions. They seemed to have it all. And then with blinding speed, they collapsed and they fired their general manager and they embarked on a rebuild or at least a reset, as they have called it. So how did this happen? You you talk a bit about Frank Wren and how the Braves quickly fired every Wren in sight everywhere in the organization and in the minor league system. And you talk about how he wasn't well-liked in the organization, but from afar, it's hard to see why. So so how did this downfall come about? You know, it's I, I, I vividly remember you and I having, I think it was an email conversation back in, yeah. uh, I think it, it would have been either February or March of 2014, which is not that long ago. No. And uh, we were talking about how how prescient the Braves were to have locked up all these young guys for the long term. Julio Tehran, Anderson Simmons, Craig Kimbrell, uh, Freddie Freeman. They'd, they'd uh, signed Jason Hayward uh, to an extension that got him to free agency. The, other, the others basically, uh, they bought up the free agency or their arbitration years and got them very deep uh, into what would have been free agency for those guys. And, and you and I were talking, we, you invoked the name of John Hart, having come mm-hmm. along and, and helped the Braves, have been a Braves consultant very recently, and that you felt that this was uh, modeling on what Hart had done back in the 90s with the Cleveland Indians when they were a very good young team. And yeah. and I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think our, our, our shared consensus was these were great moves. These were, these were forward-thinking things. These were the kind of things that, that set the Braves up to be a very good team for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, here we sit in 2016, and Kimbrell's been gone a, uh, almost a year. Simmons is gone, and uh, Freeman could go any minute, I guess, although I don't think he will. Uh, and uh, Tehran has obviously been the subject of much trade talk himself. Hayward was traded uh, in, the, in the first big move of the new regime. And, and I think basically it came down to the point, it came down to the Braves hated everything Wren did, uh, the new Braves, and some of the old Braves too. John, John Scherholz 
who had given his blessing to Wren succeeding him as general manager was the Braves president for all all the, all the time these Wren doings were happening. And um, he began to take a more active role, from what I gather, a little bit after the start of last season. He didn't like that the Braves struck out a whole lot, and that's that's exactly the kind of team uh, Wren uh, built. It was a clouder-out team. They led the league in home runs in uh, 2013, and they also led the league in, uh, I think they led the league in strikeouts or were second. They were, they they, they were as advertised. They either hit it out of the ballpark or they didn't hit it at all. But 2013, they had, uh, they had won the uh, division. Uh, and they beat out the, the hugely favored Washington Nat- Nationals, beat them by 10 games, and seemed in pretty good shape. But the, the Braves sort of did it that year in spite of a couple of big Wren moves. One of them was the, the longstanding uh, trade with Miami for uh, or what was in Florida, for Dan Ugla, and, and they signed him to a long-term uh, extension. And then the, the capper was the B.J. Upton signing, which uh, didn't work from the start and didn't get any better. And uh, it ended up with, uh, there was a good chance going into the 2013 playoffs that neither Upton nor Ugla would have been on the playoff roster because they uh, it ended up that Ugla didn't make the playoff roster, but B.J. did. But, uh, I mean, he also struck out, I think, three times in the series or something. So anyway, they didn't like that. They didn't like the strikeouts. They, but they, they really didn't like what had happened to their farm system. And they felt like, although the Braves had produced a lot of very good players in the recent years, including Teron and Mike Miner and Freddie Freeman and Hayward, that was about to run dry. And they, they felt like they needed to uh, do something. And John Scherholtz and uh, John Hart Essentially, and Bobby Cox was involved in this too. The day after the Braves were eliminated from contention in 2014, they fired Frank Wren and they fired his brother, the scout, mm-hmm. and they fired Bruce Mano, who was Wren's uh, number two guy. And pretty soon they traded Kyle Wren, his son. You know, I, I think I said in the essay, this felt kind of like the uh, at the end of the the Godfather that uh, all family business was settled that day or something. And then uh, they they turned the team over essentially to John Coppolella and, and John Hart, even though Coppolella was not given the um, title of general manager until after this this season just passed. He was nonetheless the architect of most everything they did, and they did a lot. They traded Hayward, they traded Justin Upton, they traded Kimbrell, they traded Evan Gaddis. And then they really got busy, which was, as we saw with the uh, trade with the Dodgers for Oliveira last year, and then uh, then most especially the two recent trades, the uh, the deal that got them Dansby Swanson and also uh, the Simmons deal. That is that was not the most concise recap in the history of recaps. Let me just go on <laughs> to say that. I, I kind of want to ask you about the essay that we ran in the annual uh, year earlier. Uh, by Alex Remington, which kind of part of the premise of that was that the Braves are uh, and a uh, team with a ton of continuity in their front office. They have, as you know, as you mentioned, Sherholtz and, and Bobby Cox are there, and you know even Coppolella, as this essay argued, is an internal promotion. As the Braves tend to lean toward internal promotions, and they after their their horrible collapse in 2014, they didn't really make many changes to the coaching staff or the managerial stuff. And it's sort of clear from your essay that even if Copy was promoted from within. He was not part of the Wren regime in any particular way. He wasn't given much of a say in major decisions. And I wanted to, I think you can, you can debate whether having Sherholtz and, and Bobby Cox is, is a plus or a minus. I think a lot of people would say, well, that's a great plus. Those guys built 
a heck of a dynasty. But I'm curious, the role that Sherholtz plays right now in this regime, is it the sort of president that we think of like, you know, Andrew Friedman, where, where he's the de facto GM, where he's extremely involved in baseball operations and baseball decisions? Or is Capoella a GM that has uh, a great deal of, of authority and a great deal of kind of sovereignty over his department? I, I would say that Capoella has the power that we would ascribe to an old school GM, meaning he can call the shots. That's not to say that some of his moves had not been vetoed. Uh, I'm told that uh, for all the deals they did make, Hart de- vetoed two big deals right before the All-Star break uh, last year. I do think that basically the decisions now are being made. 75%, I'm, I'm just throwing a number out, Coppolella, 25% Hart, and then they run it by Sherholtz. Sherholtz right now, his big deal is presiding over the new stadium, which is being built uh, about five miles from where I sit. And uh, that's kind of Sherholtz's role now. He is the president of the team. Hart is also the president of the team. They do have two presidents. But Sherholtz is not so much in the baseball loop uh, anymore. And uh, in fact, that was one of the things that was kind of remarkable about the whole Wren thing is Sherholtz had really receded in, in both visibility and we thought in influence over the over the time since he had uh, retired to become president, which I think happened at the end of the 2007 season, right after he made the trade, uh, sent the whole farm system to uh, Texas for uh, Mark Teixeira. He, he really had not had a, a terribly active role. I mean, he talked to Wren, but when he kind of came back into the picture uh, and fired Wren at that rather stern press conference where he said, we have terminated Frank Wren. It, you know, it was kind of like uh, it was kind of like the old lion roaring there. But I, I don't think that that's what we've seen since. I, I think that they have given it to, to Hart and, and especially to Coppolella to run. And I remember the, the uh, essay from last year, which I thought was very good, about how that the Braves were that needed to look uh, further outside. And, and I, I would say that's true. I, I would also say that because Coppolella came up in the Yankee chain under uh, Brian Cashman and the Steinbrenners before he got here, and because he wasn't necessarily a Wren intimate, and, and because he's John Coppolella, who is you know an economics graduate of Notre Dame, uh, never really a baseball player, and, and a pretty, I hate to use the term, but a pretty out-of-the-box thinker, I, I don't think Coppolella fits anything the Braves have ever done. And, and I, I think that's why this is so fascinating. You described Capolella's operating style in your essay, and, and he sort of sounds like the most annoying person in your fantasy league. I mean, he is just, <laughs> you know, constantly pitching trades and sending texts in the middle of the night and coming up with, you know, three trade proposals for every one that he actually tells people about. Is that something that makes him particularly well-suited to the Braves at this time of transition? And, and do you think that he would be able to adjust to a team that doesn't need to make changes as much? Or, or is he just going to be a kind of compulsive trader lane style? Now, that, that, that's, a very, that's a very good question. And, and there, are a lot of, there are some people I know who like Coppolella who have that question about him. Will, you know, is he one of those guys who has to be in acquisition mode? Or, or can he just say, okay, we're going to let this team s- settle and develop? I've heard from some of his critics that this this is going to be his weakness because he has never put together a team before. And he kind of, going back to the economics thing, he seems, he, he tends to look at things as assets. He draft picks, international uh, signing slots, whatever, 
those are things to be accumulated and counted. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make for a 25-man Major League roster or, or an optimal 25-man Major League roster. I, I happen to think that Coppolella is good enough with people. Wren was not always good with people. I think Coppolella is smart enough and willing enough to listen that, that anything, any mistakes he might make early are not apt to be repeated. Now, whether or not this is going to succeed, that's a matter way beyond what we can foresee right now because, you know, sometimes it works. I mean, it works. It, it seems to be working for the Houston Astros. I, I know that the, the Braves, the Coppolella's trade models going into this offseason were the, uh, the Syndergaard Darno for R.A. Dickey trade that essentially jump-started the Mets rebuilding and got them to the World Series. Uh, and also the trades made by the Royals, where they traded uh, Zach Grinke uh, two years after a Cy Young and ended up with uh, the MVPs of the last two American League Championship Series uh, and, and also the Will Myers trade. You know, I, I think he realizes that you have to be bold and, and he, is not, he is not afraid. I think, those, I, think I said that in, in the book uh, or in, in what I wrote was that he is not afraid. He would rather be wrong than be timid. And, and uh, you know, we're doing this podcast right now because the Braves are ranked 29th in the majors. Mm-hmm. When you get this low, I mean, you, you're, you know, faint heart is not going to win fair maiden. You're going to have to do a lot of stuff. And I think they, the last two trades in particular accelerated their progress to a place where maybe even they wouldn't have foreseen a year ago. I, I think they believe that the Simmons trade and the uh, Shelby Miller trade, the second Shelby Miller trade, this one they sent him out, uh, got them six people who are either major leaguers or are very close to being major league ready. And that wasn't the case with the with the cluster of trades they made last offseason. So one of the interesting things about this, I mean, it's easy to compare what they're doing now to what the, the Cubs did. But, of course, the Cubs very clearly got position prospects. They built a huge farm of elite position prospects and figured, well, we'll get pitching when we're ready to compete. Pitching is very risky. We'll, you know, make the signings. We'll make the trades when we have to. And the Braves have done kind of the opposite. They've gotten pitching in every trade. They did get Swanson, but for the most part, it looks like they've built a pool of about 11 guys from which they hope five will, you know, emerge as a, you know, Met-style pitching staff down the road. Do you think that's a philosophical difference, or is that just a, a matter of who was available to them in these trades? I, I think it is a philosophical difference, and I, I think this goes back to uh, this may go back to Sherholtz because the Braves got good uh, in the early '90s because of great young pitching, and then added to it with with Greg Maddox and, and uh, Denny Nagel and people of that stripe. But um, I, I think also the Braves felt like it, it, you know you could take more risk on young pitchers because you know, not all, all young, you're going to have, if you, if you go after young pitching, you're going to have to get a lot of them. Hart uh, last summer said, you know, the old baseball adage was you get 10 hoping to get three real pitchers out of it. I've, I think I've read on your site the old line about how there's really no such thing as a pitching prospect because they're also suspect uh, just because the nature of what they do. I, I think that the Braves also, though, saw it as since everybody wants pitching, if we load up on pitching, we will be able to get what we want, meaning a Dansby Swanson, from uh, somebody else just because we have the pitching to be able to spend. And, and that, was, that was really the first big manifestation of it, of that philosophy. You know, they had gotten Shelby Miller, 
who had had one of the, the great six-win seasons in the history of baseball, and then they flipped him for uh, a guy who had just been the number one uh, pick in the in the MLB draft. I, I've, I've heard some baseball people say, you know, of course you never know, but I've heard some baseball people say they felt like that was one of the best trades of the last 10 years. And I, I, I mean, when I looked at it at, uh, the night it happened, I thought, this is, this is really something. I mean, you know, they, they didn't just get a number one pick. They got the number one pick like six months after he was the number one pick. That was remarkable. And, and I think that trade went away toward calming the waters because, because frankly, uh, in Atlanta, the Simmons trade uh, really ticked off a lot of people. Uh, they, they, they understood the Upton and the Kimbrell and the Gaddis trades. But the Simmons one, you know, they, they saw this great shortstop, the, you know, the best shortstop, you know, in baseball, the best shortstop in baseball, maybe since Ozzy Smith. And, they, you know, they gave him up, you know, at a very young age with a very workable contract. And, and it was like the Braves weren't going to be satisfied. So went the reaction. The Braves weren't going to be satisfied until they had torn the the entire t- uh, organization to shreds. I, I think the Swanson trade, and, and you know, they also got Ender Enciarte and, and a really good uh, pitching prospect uh, in Aaron Blair. I think that trade went a, went a long way to calm some of that, to unruffle some of those ruffled feathers, because it, it was the Simmons trade. He, I, I knew why they did it, and I knew that Capolello was apt to do it. But at the same time, you know, Simmons and Freeman were the only two everyday players left that the the Braves could really sell as being, you know, young, marketable guys. And then the the more exciting of the two was gone. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I don't know if you can speak for a fan base, but the fans' level of frustration with the decision to rebuild or reset, because in the recent examples we've seen, the Astros and the Cubs and maybe the Phillies, all of those teams had extended periods of losing and just being demoralizing and having lots of over 30 declining overpaid players and and no prospects and seemingly no hope. And it, it seemed very obvious in each of those cases that they needed to start from scratch, whereas the Braves went from being good to rebuilding so quickly that I imagine it must have given some fans some sort of whiplash. So did they do a good job of explaining their thinking or justifying why they needed to get so bad in order to be good again when they had been good so recently? I don't I don't know that the Braves ever said we're going to come out and tear it down completely. But they they did have a pretty good act to follow popularity wise because Wren was not a very popular general manager because of the Upton and Ugla contracts. Mm-hmm. I mean people you can also go back to Kenshin Kawakami and Derek Lowe. Those, those were basically the Mount Rushmore of lousy contracts that people pointed out whenever they mentioned Frank Wren. And at some point, I, I mean, it, it, it was kind of weird because from the beginning of the 2010 season until a week before Wren was fired, the Braves had the best record in the National League, even better than the Cardinals, better than the Giants. Over, over an almost five seasons, they had the best record in the National League and yet their GM was the dunce who gave out these terrible contracts. There, I had some people uh, who were very close to the Braves say, we win in spite of Wren. I, I never actually believed that because I, I don't think you can ever win in spite of ban- bad management over that long a period. But uh-huh. anyway, we, you know, back to the new guys. They, they came in and a lot of people didn't like the team that Wren had built. They hated the, they hated the bad contracts. They didn't like the strikeouts. 
conveniently, the last Wren team had collapsed after the All-Star break. And so it wasn't like they were coming off a high. And they also hadn't won a playoff series. And, and right or wrong, that's kind of what people in Atlanta want to see before they'll, they'll dive back in to their fandom the way they were back in, the, in 1991 and 2 and 3, is they want to see somebody win, somebody, win something in October. Uh, because the Braves have gone a long time now since since they've won anything in the postseason. The one thing I, I think that Hart and uh, Sherholtz and Coppola said is we want to get back to the Braves way. In fact, they use that phrase, the Braves way. And they talked about young pitching and, and uh, homegrown players. But I, I still don't think they came out and said, look, we're going to trade away everybody you've ever. Anybody you've bought a jersey that, w- that has the name of a player on the back on, we're going to trade that guy away which is basically what they did over, over the, they've done over the last 16 months, again, with the exception of Freeman. So I, I think there has been a real shock to the system. And, and I think the culmination of that was, uh, it sort of came close to that when they made the Oliveira trade and they traded Alex Wood, whom a lot of people liked because he's a, he's a jo- former Georgia Bulldog, he's a gutty pitcher, and he's been a pretty good pitcher, uh, you know, a very good young pitcher. Uh, but they traded him to the Dodgers, they traded Jim Johnson, their closer, and they traded uh, Jose Peraza, who at one point had been rated their number one prospect, for a 30-year-old Cuban. That was a trade that was kind of hard to explain. I, I understood that they got Oliveira because they they wanted a guy to maybe pair with Freeman because they knew they didn't have anybody else. And they also knew that they liked Oliveira because they had been on Oliveira when the Dodgers bought him in the auction over, over the last spring. But the Simmons trade was, was kind of the point where, every, where a lot of folks threw up their hands. Now, I, I, coming after that, I think, I think Swanson and um, that NCRT and Blair deal, that, w- that calmed the waters some. But, you know, the season's going to start. I think there's a real chance the Braves are going to be terrible. The only difference this year is I think they're more, more apt to be terrible early, uh, which they weren't last year. They were 42 and 42 on uh, July 6th. They're apt to be terrible early this time because the rotation's awful and then get better as the younger guys start to come up. Yeah, obviously when you trade major league contributors, you got to sell your fans on the vision and, and on the philosophy and on what you're doing, but you also have to sell them on you know, whether it was a good trade, whether you got a good return. And I think for the most part, even the controversial trades have brought back good returns that you know, it's easy to see what they're doing and to say, well, they, they did a good job. If, if you're going to trade Simmons... Uh, you know, you get a good return. If you're going to trade, you know, any of these guys, you got to get a good return. And the Alex Wood one is the one where it's mystifying because Oliveira is the big return. And he seems like a guy who the industry has soured on a lot since they first pursued him coming out of Cuba. He doesn't seem to fit the long-term vision of the team because he's already into his 30s. He's ineligible for our top 10 list because uh, we don't treat veteran international signings as prospects, but even if he had been eligible, our guys would have left him out of the top 10. And so it really seems like that's an instance where they see him differently than everybody else in the industry sees him. Do you know what it is exactly that they still see in him uh, at this point that everybody else either disagrees with or is missing? Well, I, I think they see a guy who is already an older guy who is, they like his makeup. They've used that word on him. They like that he doesn't strike out. They don't think he's going to hit 30 home runs. They think he can hit 20. They're still trying to find him a position. As of now, he's, he's going to be playing left field. But I, I would also say in, in the Braves' defense on that trade, they valued 
the two younger guys in the deal, Alex Wood and Jose Peraza, much less highly than the baseball world on the outside did. They were very scared of uh, Alex Wood's delivery. They were afraid it w- he was going to break down. Uh, he's already had one round of Tommy John surgery when he was when he was in Georgia. They were looking for a reason to try to get something for Alex Wood. And Peraza, they like uh, Ozzie Albies better. Uh, and this was before they got Dansby Swanson. They liked uh, Ozzie Albies better. And let, let's note that Peraza has already been traded again from uh, the Dodgers to Cincinnati. They think Peraza is the kind of a guy who doesn't walk and doesn't hit for power. He's, he runs very well. He's a good fielder. He puts the bat on the ball. But he, he's not the kind of guy... He, their thinking was, we never, cons- we being the new administration, the post-Ren guys, we never considered him our number one prospect. You know, the Ren guys liked him. But it, it's interesting that if you look uh, at the, the baseball prospectus list of top 101 prospects, uh, the Braves had two guys on, them, on on that list last year, Peraza and Christian Betancourt. Both of them had come up under or had, had been signed and developed under Ren. Both of them have since been traded. The Braves this year have, I think, six guys in the top 82 of that. All uh, And the only guy who was on the roster when Wren was in place was Albies. And my last question, yesterday when we talked about the Phillies, they project to be slightly worse than the Braves, but we spent a lot of the time talking about how they might be a fun team to watch and how they didn't seem to have a lot of the sort of Correa, harangue, Francoeur type of veterans who maybe aren't that fun to watch or there's no sense that they're going to get better. They have a bunch of promising players who came up last year and some more on the way. So do the Braves fit into that same box yet or are they just going to be bad and boring? Again, I think it it probably will be a season broken into. I I think there will be the the first part of the season, which will be not good. But I think, you know, there's a real chance you could see Swanson and Albies and Sean Newcomb and uh, Aaron Blair and uh, maybe some others in Atlanta this year of their top five prospects. And, and the other thing that we haven't talked about or we, we've touched on only briefly is the Braves are moving after this year. This is their farewell to Turner Field and downtown Atlanta. Mm-hmm. The reason Braves are moving from Atlanta downtown is because they, they got mad at the city of Atlanta and the mayor. So I think the Braves would much rather be better at the start of the 2017 season in their new ballpark in Cobb County, uh, SunTrust Park, than they would in the 2016 season where, the, where their ballpark is a lame duck. I don't know that they're going to be great or, or even that exciting. I, I do think they're going to be younger, and, and, and sometimes that translates to excitement just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And do you think that people will have a, a problem getting to that park, people who aren't as close to it as you are? I'm pretty close to it, and I think I'll have a problem getting to that park. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, no, I, I mean, it's not easy to get anywhere in Atlanta. You guys may have heard that. But uh, this one this one is going to, and it's no, it wasn't never easy to get to Turner Field, but this one is going to have its own uh, share of uh, traffic delights because uh, basically it's on one of the most traveled uh, roads in uh, the biggest suburb of Atlanta, Marietta. You know, it's right across from a mall. You've got a million strip malls and restaurants along the way. It's right by the confluence, as they used to say, of three rivers. It's right near the confluence of both I-285 and I-75, which are 
major, major crowded interstates. And it could be something uh, when, when they do open out there. And I, uh, having learned to ex expect uh, the absolute uh, worst in Atlanta traffic, I'm not expecting anything less here. So my last question is about that 2017 season. Teams that are going into new stadiums sometimes uh, you can tell are building for that season to have a good team that season so that they have a good product on the field when lots of fans are showing up. And it seems like the Braves maybe maybe arguably could have put a better product on the field if they'd kept Simmons and Miller uh, for the you know for those medium term years, and uh, and they obviously you know didn't. How good will that team be? Ben's in a minute going to ask you to predict how many wins the Braves will have in 2016. I'm curious how many wins you'll predict they'll have in 2017, which uh, of course kind of forces you to speculate on what they're going to do next off season as well. I think the Braves feel like. There's a chance of them being a, a and I don't know this from any, I mean, you know, like John Coppolella hasn't sat down and told me, you know, I, I think we're going to win 87 games in, uh, in 2017. I, I think the Braves are probably going to be nuzzling around 500 in 2017. I, I think, not to uh, give away what I'm about to say here, but I don't think they're going to be nuzzling around 500 in 2016. <laughs> I, I do think that they are they are they have made more progress now than I thought they would be able to make in this short a time, and I am encouraged that this this rebuild, which could easily have turned into a long slog, may not be quite that long. I don't know that they're going to lose 100 games three years in a row the way Houston did. If they if they do, then perhaps John Coppolella will be uh, will be back at Notre Dame. As a football manager, but, uh, uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. So the question Sam predicted: How far below 500 do you envision them being this year? Do you have a, a number in mind? You know, there are just so many bad teams in the National League, mm -hmm. uh, or teams that appear to be bad. You know, you you would have to think that that bottom six is going to like, as they say in the SEC football West, beat up on each other. So I, I, I don't know that the Braves are going to get to 100 losses this year. They got to 95. I, I'm going to say 91 losses, which I guess would make it, what, 71 and 91? Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me go with that. Okay. All right. So you can read Mark's excellent essay on the Braves in the BP Annual. You can read him in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and you can find him on Twitter at Mark Bradley AJC. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me, guys. This is, uh, this is a great uh, treat for me. All right. Stay tuned after the break to hear Jeff talk to Garrett Spain from Talking Chop. The crops ain't worth the seed at Join the podcast now as we continue our preview of the 2016 Braves season. It's Garrett Spain. He covers minor league baseball and Braves minor league baseball at Talking Chop, the SB Nation Atlanta Braves site. Garrett, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. So after locking up what looked to be the core of the next competitive Braves team a couple years back, 
The team has dealt away many of those names. They got very good returns in trade. But do you think the fan base as a whole buys into the need for a rebuild now? I think with the new front office coming into play, there was a lot of that initial, you know, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to bring to the table to make the team better? And they start right off with trading away a fan favorite in Hayward, and then they went on to trade up in Gaddis. Kimber, all of those guys. I think for a lot of fans, it kind of scared them because there was nobody, there were very few te- players on the team that they recognized and that they liked and all that. So, you know, there was just the initial skepticism of, is this going to work out, whatever. And then as time goes on, they seem to adjust and start to, many of them recognize that it was a good move for whatever reason. And I mean, but even still, there's issues when a player is traded. I mean, there was a lot of backlash when Andrews and Simmons was traded for Sean Newcomb, even though, you know, got a great prospect in return. So it's, you know, it's kind of hit or miss. There's a lot of fans that like it. There's a lot of fans that don't. It does seem like at times the new front office has been on their back foot in the media defending those trades. I think specifically the Andrelton Simmons trade. Do they have a PR problem in Atlanta, or do you think that will all calm down once fans start to see a return on the field? I think there's definitely kind of a weird aura around their team. I mean, there's this fresh kind of new era we're going into where there's this new stadium, all these prospects, but the excitement around the team and around the play just isn't there because they're just not good. And it's hard at times to really, I don't know if there's a PR problem right now, but if the team doesn't start showing progress on the field, I think there's going to be issues. It helps that right as we start to rebuild the Astros, the Mets, the Cubs, they started succeeding and doing great. I think for a lot of fans, that gives them hope that it's going to do the same for us. But, I mean, winning cures everything. The diehards are going to stay through the tough times. Some of the fans are going to maybe stop watching. But once the team starts winning again, it, it's all going to go away. It's, it's all going to be fine, and no one's really going to pay it any attention. And John Coppolello and company have tried to assuage fans at the remaining sort of big homegrown names, names like Freddie Freeman and Julio Turan are not on the market, but do you think that's actually the case if this team is bad come trade deadline and there might be offers out there for those kind of players? I'm pretty sure we're not going to trade Freeman just simply because there has to be somebody. You know, he's a great veteran to build around. He's locked up for a while, and especially coming off a down year. For the right price, I could definitely see them trading him. I mean, everybody's available for the right price, but it'd be very hard to get him away, especially with a weak first base group in the minor league system. Tehran, on the other hand, I could see him going, especially once the deadline comes around. There'll be a lot of teams looking for pitching, and there's a good chance he could go out. So of the, we'll switch sort of the to the minor league side and the prospect side, which is your area of expertise. Who's the player they've added this past offseason, or maybe over the last year or so, that you think Braves fans should be most excited about? In general, you know, obviously Dancy Swanson and Sean Newcomb are going to be you know, big-time players. They look to be big-time players. So I'm really excited about Aaron Blair because he provides a solid type player where, he, you know, he's going to be there, he's going to play well, and he's going to be there for the next, you know, six years, however long they have him controlled. He fills a workhorse show and he fills up innings. And the big thing is, is he can help right now. He's going to be a guy that he's going to go on the field and he's going to contribute to this team and make this team better starting today, and I think that's going to help a lot of fans, and it's a good starting point there. 
You mentioned Sean Newcomb, and I'm a big fan of Sean Newcomb myself. I saw him a lot as an amateur. Do you think he was a big enough prospect to headline the Andrew Elton Simmons deal? Oh, definitely. I mean, he's he's a top 30 or so prospect in baseball. I mean, he and he's got everything. He's got a great fastball plus off-speed stuff. I mean, he, you look at he just he looks like a pitch. You know, six five, two forty five. He's you know, I mean, he's got the control problems, but that's going to come. I think that's going to come with time. He comes from a small college. It's just it's an experience thing. But he's. I think he's going to be a really good ball player. And he could theoretically be in play for a 2016 Major League role at some point. You already mentioned Aaron Blair, who's very close to Major League ready. And Dansby Swanson could move quickly as well. But in general, how willing do you think the Braves will be to give those prospects opportunity in 2016 on a bad team? I think there's a few considerations to take into account. There will definitely be pieces that they'll try to move. Um, Eric Ibar, who they got in the Sean Newton deal, and Bud Norris, who they signed being the obvious candidates, you know, if Bud Norris doesn't work out, he'll probably get DSA'd like Trevor Cahill and Eric Stoltz last year. But if he plays well, they're going to definitely try to move him for a piece, even if it's not, you know, it's not going to be a big Bud Norris, but he's going to try to get something into the system that can help out. Whenever he's gone, someone, you know, obviously Aaron Blair is going to slide in early. Even if Norris doesn't go, he's probably going to slide in pretty soon and take over a role. And then once Norris goes, it opens up the, door for someone like Tyrell Jenkins to sneak in there and start trying to earn a rotation spot. Ibar, if they're competing and they move him, it's because they feel that Swanson's ready, they'll call him up. They probably won't compete, so come trade deadline time, they're probably going to move him. They'll probably slot in Daniel Castro or Dave Peterson, unless, obviously, he's ready. And then, you know, Sean Newcomb, he could get a chance. But, I mean, he only has seven games at AA, and they're probably just going to keep him down unless unless it's just a September call. I mean, personally, for both him and Swanson, I wouldn't want to waste a service time for an elite-level prospect on a team that's not competing anyway, unless it's obvious that there's no reason to keep him in AAA. If they go down there, you know, Swanson's hitting 330 in AAA, and Newcomb has a 140 ERA, obviously you can't keep him down. you got to bring him up. you got to let him grow. But unless they're just absolutely dominating, there's no reason to keep him up. And, of course, there's guys like Malik Smith who should get called up. You know, just guys. But I think they'll kind of wait until 2017 to call a lot of these guys up just as a, we're coming into this new park, and here's all our shiny new prospects come out and watch. It's fun. It's exciting. It's the start of a new era, and I think it'll really help bring a, a lot of excitement around the team that just isn't really there right now. So how much do you think the new park sort of on the horizon is affecting field management, player development, front office type moves right now? Are they sort of just in a holding pattern until that new stadium opens? The original plan was to compete by 2017. That was what the, we have said. I think that they got into it, realized that that wasn't going to work out. But the original plan was to work for 2017. But for a fact, I mean, they're taking in the money that they're going to get from SunTrust Park, and, you know, they're applying it to areas. They acquired Tiki Toussaint. Just, I mean, basically, they paid Arizona by taking off Bronson Arroyo, and then, you know, they're going after a lot of international free agents. Abraham Gutierrez, Kevin Mike of course. Huge prospect. I mean, they've even been in talks with Lazarito. So I think that's definitely been a consideration that they think they might have some more money involved. But being players... I don't know if it's going to impact player development or not. And you already mentioned a little bit about the fans maybe not coming out for a bad team. Are they counting on 
a stadium, a new stadium bump, even if the team isn't good when they move in there? Oh, definitely. I mean, everyone wants to come out, see the new stadium. I want to go out and see the new stadium, even if the team's terrible. I mean, I want to go see the games anyway, but so it's going to be. And then, of course, you've got the guys that they're going to start recognizing the new prospects and everything. They're going to come watch those. And it's, it's going to be an exciting time. I think, I think the fans are going to enjoy that. And then I think once 2018 comes around, they'll be good enough to bring in fans just based on how good the team is. You know, one bad season where the new stadium kind of bumps up revenues and then go into where you're a competitive team or somewhat competitive. So for 2016, what if these prospects don't come up right away or even at all, what's worth watching, what's worth following on the Braves at the major league level? Well, definitely you got to follow the development of certain players. Hector Oliveira is one you have to follow. I mean, that was, he was a headliner in, in you know, the huge trade that sent Jose Peraza and Alex Wood out to Los Angeles earlier. So you definitely want to watch to see how he develops and how he plays. And if he's going to be a valuable piece, there's definitely, you know, what, just watching the improvements around the diamond, guys like Dave Peterson, Ender and Ciarte that you know are going to be on the team for a few years. Freddie Freeman, obviously. Everyone wants to watch Freeman play. And then just to kind of see how the team grows and plays together as there's a team coming up. And then you've got guys like Ibar that you're going to just want to watch because they're fun guys to watch. Eric Ibar will be a fun player to watch, I think, to play it for fans this year. Garrett, we'll let you go on this. For our listeners that don't follow the Braves as closely as you do, who might be an under-the-radar name that could have a big role or a big impact on the 2016 team? I'm going to go super under-the-radar here and go with a bullpen arm at the AAA level in David Peterson. Last year, I mean, the bullpen was laughably bad for the Braves. I mean, for me, I there were a few occasions where I just wanted to cut my remote at the wall. It was just horrible. You know, Peterson, he's a guy out of the College of Charleston. He's a big guy, 6'5". He was drafted in the eighth round in 2012. You know, he had good numbers in his first two seasons, but like a lot of players in the system, he had Tommy John in 2013. This year, though, I mean, he broke out. He had a 2.2 A between high A Carolina, double A Mississippi, and triple A Gwinnett, and had a 2.08 ERA in Gwinnett. I mean, if he proves himself in spring training, he could make the 40-man roster get on the 25s, but there's also a good chance that, you know, guys are going to get injured, guys are going to struggle, he could get called up. You know, his strikeout rates are not great, but he's a ground ball type pitcher. He's got a really heavy fastball. He sits in the mid-90s. He's got a good curveball, that type of player. To me, when I look at him for a ceiling, I kind of see a little bit of Jim Johnson. Obviously, I don't expect him to be that good. I mean, Jim Johnson's a great player in his prime, but, you know, that he's kind of in that same mold of, you know, big guy thinker, throws a lot of strikes, you know, ground ball type pitcher. And he definitely has, I mean, he has closer stuff. So I think he's an under-the-radar name to watch. And then if you're thinking about bullpen arms, again, if you think about a major league guy, Shea Simmons coming off the time of time is going to be a big addition this year. Garrett Spain, minor league writer at Talking Chop, the SB Nation Atlanta Braves site. You can also follow him on Twitter at Crash Spain. Thanks for coming on. All right. All right. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Mark and Garrett for joining us today. You can send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. 
Sam and I have a book coming out soon, which features this podcast prominently. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and it's about how we spent our summer vacation running the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league team in California, according to sabermetric principles. And you can pre-order it now. It officially ships on May 3rd, but if you order early, you might get it early. You can find it at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and everywhere else people sell books. If you buy it through the link on the BP homepage, BP will get a few cents from that sale at no extra cost to you. And you can also support our sponsor, The Play Index, at BaseballReference.com. Use the coupon code BP and get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a nice weekend. We will be back on Monday when our 30-team podcast preview series will continue with the Cincinnati Reds. Not safe.